Uh, my name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor of New England Home Magazine. And I am personally delighted and honored to have been asked back for a fifth year uh, to help facilitate these talks. Although, obviously, my role here is really just to help our expert panelists kind of get their expertise out to all of you and help all of you get your expertise out to everybody else. Um, but it's really a great part of the mission of New England Home to try to bring people together and really give back and be part of the design and building community. Uh, and I think this is a very important way to do that. Uh, this particular week, it happens to be one of two different ways we're hoping to do that. So I hope I will be seeing a lot of you on Thursday night at our New England Design Hall of Fame, uh, where we will be honoring some really fabulous people. Uh, who will be joining some people who are already in this room who have been honored there in the past. Um, but that's enough of a, uh, an advertisement for something outside of here. Tonight, I am delighted to be sitting with four incredibly knowledgeable and talented people. Uh, we're going to be talking about time, money, and truth. How honest can you be? And I'm not at all surprised that we have a pretty good size audience. And I expect to get a lot of input from everyone here because I think those are topics that everyone has some ideas and thoughts about. Uh, we're going to be dealing with two specific things, days and dollars, uh, neither of which is there ever really enough of, and both of which you will need more of for almost any project than people realize going into it. And that brings up a lot of questions both in the trade and among your design and construction team and also in how you deal with clients to kind of impart those and get their expectations and sort of manage everybody's experience all the way through. Uh, so without going into that anymore, I would like to introduce our wonderful panelists. On the far end, we have Colin Flavin of Colin Flavin Architects here in Boston, who many of you know and have worked with. Uh, right here we have Jill Littner-Kaplan, interior designer from Jill Littner-Kaplan Interiors based in West Newton. Again, many of you probably know. Uh, Matthew Cunningham uh, from Matthew Cunningham Landscape Design based up in Stoneham, but again, <laughs> have worked with many people in this room, which is a wonderful thing. And finally, Stephen Payne, otherwise known as Steve from Payne Boucher, fine builders here in Boston. And once again, I could say the same sentence about uh, being a close associate of many of you, uh, which is another thing that's really nice about these talks, that Boston and New England in general have such a uh, collegial uh, design and construction industry. So all of these people are going to be starting the conversation a little bit, but I want to emphasize that these talks are meant to be kind of a group conversation uh, so anybody who has a question or something that you would like to interject at any point during the talk, kind of jump up and down and wave a little bit. And John Kilfoyle back there will bring you the microphone uh, because we do want to have more kind of input on this topic than just what the four of these folks can provide. Uh, so we hope to kind of get the discussion moving, but then I expect it will broaden and deepen. To hecklers. <laughs> Hecklers are good. Heckling with a purpose is always okay, kind of thing. Um, so, just to kind of get things going, um, questions about budget and schedule probably come up, I would imagine, in sometimes similar but sometimes different ways for the different 
kind of uh, partners in a design and construction project, the architect, interior designer, builder, uh, landscape person. Um, do any of you want to just kind of jump in about kind of what you think some of the commonalities would be in that or if? Sure. All the clients that are hiring any of us can almost certainly afford anything they want, but they want good value. And they want to talk about that to the builders right away. I'm not sure about for the, for the other members of the team. But we have to talk about budget and schedule out of the wrapper. First, first meeting, people are saying, well, what do you, I know I don't want to put you on the spot, but what's this really going to cost and how long is it going to take? So, that's, so we don't really get to dodge that issue very much. Um, not that we don't do our best to dodge it, but we, but we, um, and we, and we hate to get nailed down to, oh, well, what, you know, I, you know, I know my, my brother in Minnesota built something for $275 a square foot. You ought to be able to do that, right? We said, well, you know, I think Minnesota might be a different market and he's a spec, bought a spec house and thought it might be a little bit different. Um, do all our other panelists also have only incredibly well-heeled potential clients who can afford anything you want to quote them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly. I think we have, as Steve is describing, very wealthy clients, but we also have, uh, I would say, young entrepreneurial professional clients uh, who are typically asking us uh, to renovate uh, in, in, in terms of our expertise, a mid-century modern house that they may have purchased for up to $2 million. And so even when you do the math on a mortgage, um, it, it takes a tremendous amount of wealth to carry a, a $3 million mortgage at that point after we put a million dollars into it. So I think there is a limit, I think, given what real estate costs in terms of purchasing land and um, and then a home and then renovating it. So we've found there's quite a bit of a pushback um, in terms of what makes sense for a family. Okay. Well, we also have a, a cross-section of clients that are, we work all over New England and our client base is 50% um, new houses and 50% renovations or, or uh, working directly with the homeowner to develop an outdoor space. and. We had a, a group discussion on the phone yesterday about what, what are some of the commonalities and the big one was really uh, establishing the team from the start so that you can really start the dialogue with the, the client or the homeowner right off the bat. Um, and I think that translates into the entire team dynamic and understanding how the client is going to spend, what kind of resources they have to spend, what their timeline is and also um, how they're planning to parse those up into different pieces of the pie. Right. Well, Jill, um, kind of as we know, I think any one of the four of you might end up being the point person for a particular new project uh, because a lot of people will come in based on prior relationships or referrals, and it's not necessarily always the architect. It could be any of you. Do you have, um, first of all, I mean, what proportion of the clients who come to you kind of from off the radar screen really understand what they're getting into? And do you have ways that you start to suss out what they know and don't know and what they're looking for? And how do you kind of get this conversation started? 
I think it depends when we start any new project. It really depends on the way in which that client has um, arrived. If it is a project born of um, an architect who's referred us to that client, it really depends, our relationships with our clients are dependent on how they came to us. What we try to do from day one is to have a great deal of insight into their personalities, um, their preferences, their budgets. Their, we're almost like detectives, and we um, start a conversation from day one about their expectations with the project, what they hope to um, learn, what they hope to achieve, what their lifestyle is all about, um, who is using the house, the ages of their children. Um, and from that, that sort of becomes a foundation and a platform on which to grow so that we can determine the expectations for the budget. And we do not waste a moment to have that conversation. We try to um, get a very strong sense of their personalities and preferences and their budget from the get-go and then translate those preferences um, as a very collaborative member um, of a team to the project that we're embarking on. So sometimes these projects are secondary houses, so we already have previous experience with, um, with that client, which we can translate a great deal of knowledge and insight into uh, their patterns of behavior and their spending and their preferences to the architect and the builder. But otherwise, you know, these teams are formed in different ways and we can come on board and be the last person at the party and have to um, jump in very quickly and, and learn about them. Do you guys find yourselves often kind of becoming the team organizer in a way? Um, sort of figuring out what the people want and helping them find other partners for the project? Anybody who wants to jump in? Of course we do. If we're, if we're the first man in the boat, we, we say, you got to build a team. It's got to have, it's got to have the architect. It's got to have the interiors person. It's got to have the landscape architect. And we're going to bring in the mechanical contractor for a design build. We're not going to use an arm's length mechanical engineer. We're going to, we're going to put a person on the team who's going to do the HVAC. And we're going to put a person on the team who's doing the low voltage integration. That's the team. And we're not, so that means that you're not, you're not putting out to bid them your HVAC or your low voltage integration. And you, and you have to have the rest of the team. You can't inflict the interiors person on us at the end of the project who's going to move the walls. You've got to get her, you got to get her. Well, infliction may not be exactly the right. No, we want the team out of the gate. We want the team, which means that there's a lot of this stuff which you, as the team leader, being the client, you have to, uh, you have to accept that some of this is going to be, that you're going to be learning from experts and that you're not entirely driving the train. And we'll, we'll help to any sense. So that's, that's if we're first in, which we do not all, always, obviously. Do you obviously. get pushback on that sometimes? Yeah. And if so, how do you negotiate with people? Well, the first one they want to push back on is landscape architect. Oh, well, you know, we don't really have any, we're not going to do much, you know, we're going to have a lawn and everything. And, and, and I say, well. A couple of hydrangeas maybe. Yeah. I say, oh, yeah, but if you don't 
have the landscape architect on the team at the beginning, your garage will fill with water. Right. You're building on top of a vernal stream. Well, I, I would add to that by saying that uh, we're finding more and more frequently with our projects that integrating a, a landscape contractor from the start of the project is, is incredibly helpful because you're dealing with, you're ripping a property down to, to start from scratch. There's compaction, there might be trees that need to be protected, root zones that are important to protect, watersheds that are important to protect. Um, so again, it's, it's a tough one because when you're looking at uh, whether it's a competitive bidding process for, for the, the landscape contractor or the, or the GC, uh, at what point does the project get bid out? Who's bidding it out? Who decides that? How does the client want the project to unfold in that manner? And who, whose umbrella does the landscape contractor fall under, the structural engineer, the civil engineer? Um, so the, the, having that open discussion with the homeowner from the start is something that I find it, it's the most valuable part of starting a project. It, and one of my uh, teammates calls it ripping off the Band-Aid. And it, it's true, You're, no one likes to do it. No one likes to talk about money from the start. No one likes to have that conversation, especially when you have two clients typically and one's got their head in the clouds about what they want and the other one has their, their head in the sand thinking, how the hell am I gonna pay for all this? And so then, then you have to find the common ground between the two. So you, not only are you a detective, but you're a marriage counselor. So we, we tell everybody at the beginning of uh, projects, usually in the interview, that um, whenever we see dissension in the ranks be between couples, that we have multiple degrees between us, which is, uh, you know, Forget about the design and running a business. It's about marital mediation. And that's what we talk about. So there's got to be a methodology from the get-go about how decisions are being made. Everyone's shaking their head. <laughs> I think we'll have some stories in a minute. Yeah. Uh, but Colin, do you find, um, is there a lot of education involved uh, in kind of helping people understand how the budgets will probably work and how the schedule may work and may change? I think uh, there's a lot of uh, probably misinformation about what a house costs. When it comes to a new home, which is roughly 60 or 70% of what we do, it, that's a more objective uh, task to put a number on. We know it could be between 400 and $700 a square foot, let's say. And People have a, they get that that you know, it's a brand new house. We have to take down an existing house. We have to do site work. They they understand that, um, and and you can get to that zone. And, you can, and, you, and then I, I think we can describe what the difference is between um, you know, the four hundred and the seven hundred dollars square foot house. What is the difference between those two? And we what we like to be able to do is bring people to examples that we've built of from the lower end to the higher end, so people get a feel for. Uh, what fits with their own, you know, personal preferences. Um, so that I think is more objective. What, where it's much more challenging is with renovations. Um, and back to the mid-century example, th these are often amazing houses that have been lived in for 50 years, pretty successfully, often by a, a family that was there for the entire time. And so uh, on some level, you could just keep living in that house. It, it served its purpose quite well. Um, people want to update it. And then the question is, well, how deep do you want to go? And um, that's where it's much more difficult to guide people on price, because there's a tremendous range. It could be from $100 a square foot to 1000 And that's where I think um, 
we really have to work a lot harder to understand where they want to be. In term, a, a particular issue uh, with older homes is, is thermal comfort. It to, and you've got homes that are incredibly well made, but they do not necessarily have great insulation, great windows. They have slab on grade without uh, uh, insulation. So um, that can be very invasive, very, very expensive. And that's where we have to kind of really work with people to understand their expectations and guide them there. So. It's interesting because the, the landscape, um, everyone thinks landscape can come at the end or that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be integrated. For a new house, that's, that's a preposterous idea. For, for an existing house, you can buy and renovate a house, no problem, until you realize that there are perennial drainage problems that surround the house that haven't been acknowledged or repaired or dealt with. And I find in a lot of our work, we're, if we're getting involved in a project without anyone else on the team, if we're working directly with a homeowner, we're actually being asked to be to put a, a, multiple hats on, to be a civil engineer, to, to be an insulation specialist, to, to fix the problem on the gutters that's creating the ice damming in the winter that's ripping the gutters off the house. So I, I think um, it's a, for a landscape, it's a slippery slope when you are put in a position where there aren't people on the team that you can actually um, consult. And also it comes down to a question of liability and how much is a client willing to take on from a this is good enough perspective to I want it to be the, the top of the line I'm going to live in this house for 50 years. So understanding where they fall on that spectrum is, is something that we try really hard to do but there isn't always a clear answer from, from our clients. I'm in the crosshairs of a situation right now where the we were the, the Interiors person was the first man into the boat, then the architect, then the landscape architect, then us. And we were not the, we were the highest budget. Uh, so we don't have a lot of room to say, oh, well, we didn't understand this and that. Um, so they selected us over three lower numbers, some of them significantly lower than ours. And the project includes connecting the main lovely brick house to the garage. And, that, and the connector is a link that is designed to be a three-season porch, non-thermally broken glass, beautiful, um, tiny sight lines. And now, 25% of the way into the project, the clients want that to be 70 degrees all year round. So, okay. That's a big adventure. And it, you know, we carried $70,000 for HVAC, and it's going to be closer to a quarter of a million bucks to do the thing. And so <clears throat> I'm, I've had two meetings with that number in the back of my head and not been able to quite cough it up yet. But <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I don't know what the number is for real, but I can, I can taste that, it's, that, we're, that the number that we carried originally off schematic design wasn't remotely the right number for the thing, and this, and, and I, you know, this, it's not as if these clients have unlimited resource, so it, this is a, it's a real issue. But I think people, people just don't have any clue what things cost, and, and even, I, I know it's our job to influence that discussion, but people, even when I'm interviewing for projects, they, 
they may not even have a sense of what a square foot cost is for the house, let alone what a, a custom designed landscape experience can be for them and their family. And then they, they say, oh, and by the way, we want to have a pool and a hot tub and a pool house. And, and the list goes on and on. And then they tell you their budget is a million bucks. And, and you're, you're, you know, where I grew up, I grew up in rural Maine where a million dollars will buy you an unbelievable ocean estate. But here in Boston, it won't even buy you a condo in most communities. So, right. right. Well, that actually, I think, kind of leads us into kind of a, a new topic in a way because obviously people's expectations are one thing that you have to deal with, figure out in the first place and then deal with but also kind of helping people understand the impact that their decisions will have both on schedule and budget all the way through the process is a big underlying factor uh, that they may not even realize needs to be talked about. So uh, for any of you and also for all of the audience here, kind of what are ways of bringing that topic up? You know, kind of like Steve here said, well, I haven't quite found a way to, to mention this upcoming conversation no, I, about the HVAC. I certainly mentioned um, that it's going to cost more than our budget, but I just haven't... Not quite so much. I haven't coughed so, up yeah. the number yet because I don't <laughs> right. have it, but yeah. Yeah, so as a matter of diplomacy then, kind of what are some tips from all of you for dealing with situations like this? We frequently kind of deal with this issue on both extremes where we have very, very... We're engaged in a project right now on Cape Cod, the starting point was the day after Labor Day, the finish date is the day before Memorial Day weekend. It's a very finite period of time in which a great deal of activity needs to happen. And in order to execute that project, it means that we all, we, the builder, uh, the architect did the initial drafted plans and then stepped away. So it's really the design team and the uh, builder have to execute on those orders. And it is our marching instructions, which mean that we have to be in perfect sync with our client, which means that we have to schedule weekly meetings. We have to have constant communication with the builder to ensure that we are staying on task, that we are several steps ahead in terms of producing deliverables that they need, if they need rough plumbing, if they need a paint schedule, if we have to design bathroom cabinetry, select all the tile, work out the square footage per bathroom, we need to be several steps ahead of that schedule so that we are not a cause for delay. However, what we don't know, which is always an interesting thing, um, is how our clients are going to be able to make timely decisions. So the schedule can be wonderful on paper until you actually add the human element into the equation and you can't reach them. They have very robust careers. They're not good at getting back in touch with you on a timely basis. So therefore, there are significant scheduling delays that are unanticipated um, that you can't really control other than staying on top of them and trying to reel them in to do your job. Do you try to build those things in ahead of time, sort of allowances for a little bit of communication time or indecision, or is that even possible? Uh, that is very difficult. It is. Um, 
But, you know, we've had, you never know at the outset of a project, even though people claim to be very, very decisive and people, I mean, everybody <laughs> says, oh, I make decisions very efficiently and effectively, I'm very decisive, I can do this. Um, and I say, I think that's fabulous. You appear to be, you know, extremely decisive on You'll the be surface. The first one. But um, <laughs> we're going to test you when faced with a host of uh, wonderful decisions to make. Um, you will be tested and quickly and often. And if you cannot render a decision, I can assure you we are prepared to make that for you. Um, if you want to defer to us, be my guest, because I can assure you if you do that, your project will be done on time and on budget. So, but that's a rarity. Does your builder blame you for the client indecision? I uh, tend to blame the interiors. Well, <laughs> yes. When in doubt, blame the I, designer. We all do that. You but. should do that. <laughs> um, uh, no, because I think part of our job is um, we find ourselves very frequently with, I think I used this expression before, with our finger on the pulse of, of the client and also in so doing kind of inadvertently becoming a project manager in most of the jobs that we do. And so we communicate very clearly we're having trouble getting hold of this person we are not getting a decision on a timely basis. And so, you know, it, I don't want to say we're apologists, but we try to remind our client that we're, we have a timeline. So it's chasing, it, sometimes it means chasing the client. Um, Guy, yeah, I think you had a question. How, how far do you guys let things go? I don't know if the best way to put it. Uh, in the design process for you, trying to get the client to describe their budget, hopes and dreams. From my experience, sometimes that can be a pretty long time, and then not for months, us, many months, and, and the client, and then you find out, you know, the client wanted to spend half that yeah. on the whole project, the whole, the whole thing. So I, how do you manage, how long do you let it go, and how do you manage that, and say, okay, look, you know, we need to kind of see where we are, because it's gonna influence our design, Things, what we get into. I, I would say um, most clients want to have that conversation very early on, uh, and we, we do have that conversation. We had uh, probably a third of clients do not want to have that conversation. They really, it's something they thought about for a really long time, they were really excited about it, and they, they've looked at the work that we've done and they just want to see it. Uh, they want to see the, the renderings of 3D models and, and, and then, so we'll go through a very thorough design process and then we'll have a contractor price it. Um, and, um, I mean that guy, because then they blame uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we'd still try and give a range of what, what we think it, it's going to be, but there's no, people, a lot of people don't want to, you know, be held to a budget. That's uh, if it's dangerous. a really, if it's a dream, dream project, something that's, um, and they understand it's fully, uh, you know, it's really a luxury purchase, that they don't want to be controlled by a budget early on. Do you find those projects tend to actually come through and get executed? Or is there a lot of, those are the easy kind ones. of. The ones that are 2,000 bucks a square foot, 
those, I mean, they, they may go slowly, but they go. Right. Because they're, the one ingredient that greases the whole thing is the money. Right. So those just go along. So have any of you ever actually had projects get canceled or lost a client because you were honest about what it was going to cost or what the schedule might be? Yeah. 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 Um, kind of reflecting on that, are there things that you might have talked about differently or do you feel like, do you have tips for people who might be in that situation uh, with a client who may not either be honest about what they want to pay or how long it will take or want to think about that yet? Do you recommend kind of going forward with it anyway, knowing that it might get cut off at the end? To some extent, uh, with the economy where it is and the, the amount of, of really opportunities that are out there, I think it's so much better to have that conversation and let the client decide to go with another firm. Is we're, uh, I mean, in a, in a good fortunate, people are choosing us because of the work that we've done. Specifically, I like what you do. So if I can sh tell them what that costs and they don't accept that, that's really a good time to part ways. Um, because people don't say, well, I want the, the Ford version of what you do. They don't, they want, you know, so I think if, if clients keep, like, well, I really think we can get this done for a lot less than what you're saying, you know, that, I think that's a disconnect. Um, and it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, uh, Eric, do you want to so actually? I find um, from the builder's perspective, um, based on, Colin, what you're saying, and I appreciate the opportunity to get involved in a project early on, um, the trouble that we almost, that I think is inherent in that process is that we get, say, a schematic plan from an architect. And though we might make assumptions for what the final product would be once the interiors person is coming on board or once the landscape architect is coming on board. The assumption for us to be competitive is to um, simply think about the scope of work as drawn in its schematic state at the time. And so what ends up happening oftentimes is as the drawings get further developed and more details are uh, elucidated and the pricing continues to kind of escalate because it would be in some ways or a struggle for me that I have is that if you were to be, I mean the context of this conversation tonight, if we were to be totally honest and I said, look, I know this plan is X but we're going to price Y because I know that's where you're going to end up, we would be cast away on an island somewhere because we were 2x the other person that was being consulted from a building side for that same schematic design. We went all his work by just coming in <laughs> so, so I guess I'm curious, like, how, how do we make that process of a sincere desire for honesty, collaboration, team orientation to be more effective? Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just well, the builder talking. The job away by, we, we worked with the architect before. We just, finished, we just finished a project with him. He's really excited about this new project, these new clients tear down this house on the coast uh, of the North Shore. Beautiful site, lovely clients. And we, we got his schematic plan, and we 
But we knew what it was going to end up being, so we priced it. It's a lovely house, and we priced it for about six million bucks. And when I was discussing this with the client, they said, "Well, listen, we can go down the street and buy something that's perfectly livable for three and a half million bucks. Why would we ever do this?" And I said, "Well, you know, the only reason to do this is because it's exactly what you want, and it's going to have his thumb, the architect's thumbprint all over it." And, and we do nice enough work to keep up. That's the only reason. And so he jettisoned the whole project, including the architect, who I've now been, you know, groveling, <laughs> trying to get back into his good graces, having chased his client away by being honest about what ultimately he would have designed. The thing would have easily cost six million bucks. And, um, and I couldn't really figure out a way to cast it that it was going to be three and a half million bucks with these other extra things. Oh. You know, if you don't put running water in, you can save a few bucks here and, you know, this kind of thing, you know. Well, Eric, I think your question actually does uh, kind of allude to another subject here. And uh, when we had all had a, a call yesterday to prepare for this talk, uh, it had kind of come up that a lot of the people on this panel don't always end up in kind of competitive bidding situations. But I know that many of you here in the room probably do. Uh, so I'd like to open this up a little bit. I mean, one of the things Eric said is, you know, when you know that you are up against other people who will be bidding on the same project, you know, what issues does that bring up? How can you ensure that all of those people are being honest? Or if you know that some people are not and you want to be, are there ways that you can kind of cast the discussion with the clients to sort of let them know what the pitfalls might be. I think we've got. Hi, Kyle. Thanks. Um, I think that's the problem. We're all sitting here thinking that if we look at a document that cast it somehow accurately, I think most of us look at documents when it's 15, 30%. So there's really no benchmark that's consistent. It's all up to every individual eyes that are looking at those documents. And so I want to ask, why do we keep going back to this plan bid spec model that you hear so many problems with? Why wouldn't you enter uh, and negotiate and interview a builder just the way you would a designer based on past work, reputation? What do you expect to actually live? Let's have a conversation about what your margin should be. What's a fair markup? What's good value? What do you bring for that? Not what the final cost of the widget is, because if I'm on your team, I can give feedback to that whole design group that will let you make decisions to determine the final cost of your product, not the other way around. And it seems so backwards to go through this whole design process to have a $6 million. I mean, Steve's right. I look at documents. I know what it's going to cost. And geez, do I need the work? So maybe I should downplay what it's really going to cost? Or should I have plenty of work, so maybe I should tell them the truth? And then how do I salvage a relationship with the architect who just got mad because the job just got torpedoed because I told him what I thought was the truth? So, so the whole dynamic of the conversation, I think, needs to change. I think it needs to be about, you know, when you interview a design professional, you ask, how do you get to your fee? What do I get for that? What, how many hours are you going to put in? What, what type of other things? What's your track record? What's your, what's your sense of style? But those questions aren't asked when a builder comes to the table. Typically, we're one of three or four firms, maybe more, and we want to know how much it's going to cost at 30% drawings, and all of a sudden we're a commodity, and the only one that generally gets talked to is the one that told them the fairy tale of what they want to spend. And that's what it is. And so 
you know, I, I know myself, I've been saying this, and I know a lot of this, everybody in this room, I know quite a few of these people, and we're all saying the same thing, and it's all like, how do you slice that game? And it shouldn't be a game. Right. Well, that actually brings up a question in my mind, then, that I would put out to the whole group here, which is who dictates that that is the model that you guys are going to be using or that all of you are going to be doing? Why is this put out as a competitive situation where you're working on partial information? And better yet, what leverage do all of us together here have to change that model with clients that you will all be working with going forward? Um, Marcus, you want to? Well, I think there, there are two models for that. Um, one is uh, that a client will hire a team and you'll do 100% drawings and get everything figured out and then you'll go out and competitively bid it. Um, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never done that once. Uh, but in, in commercial work, I, actually when I was a commercial architect, we did that all the time. And we had specs that were that big. We don't do specs on our projects. What typically happens is that we come up with a schematic design and we interview builders and it's not a bid process. We want a general proposal of what you think it's going to cost. And by the way, you know, what is your markup? What is your profit and overhead? What is your supervision and project management? And how does that relate to the cost, relate as a percentage to the, to the uh, labor and materials that our subs are bringing to the job? And we also know all the builders that we're working with. So we know the quality. We know the reputation. And as uh, Colin said, you know, we show clients what a $400 square foot project looks like and we show them what a $1,000 square foot project looks like. And if you do that, it works out pretty well. The key though for us is never own the budget. Now, the, the common mistake architects made is they try and own the budget. They try and tell the client what they think the project's gonna cost. That is a suicidal mistake because the project cost is gonna be determined by what the client wants and what their builder's gonna charge them for it. Right. And so, you know, if you, you know, to, to address what you were saying over there, you know, you gotta be upfront and honest with everyone about it because it's gonna come back and bite you really hard in the end. Right, do any of our panelists wanna weigh in on this a little bit? Sure. Uh, I, I think those are some, some great points um, Marcus is bringing up. Uh, one of the pieces that uh, I've been interested uh, hearing from the builder community over the past couple of months um, is, a perception that there has been a general decline in the quality of architectural drawings um, that they're seeing, which is making it more difficult to put a price on a job than it might have been. And, and some folks are tying it to the financial crisis that, that there was sort of a sea change that happened. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, from the perspective of builders, is this it's something that you see as a problem in trying to establish a number that is that you can be confident uh, in. So from our perspective, those 30% drawings, th that's where we live. We never get 100% drawings, and we don't really want them because if we've got 100% drawings, that means that we haven't had any, we're being brought in onto the team too late, as to Chris's point, we're, so then we are just, we're just bidding against FBN or Adams and Beasley or CDAR or the other players. And we're, it's going to be who forgets something and that, that person gets the job, right? So that's not the, I mean, if, 
if it's a hunt for the bottom line, that whereas if we are if we're on the team and are engaged in the process of developing the project, which includes not only the design but the budget and the schedule, and we are peers and and not um, and not just competing with the other uh, peons, we're it's, we prefer that. So the 30% the 30% complete set is where we live and it's where we can, mm -hmm. you know, so right, so um, so if, we're, if I'm competing against Eric, I want to win it on charm, not on price. <laughs> <laughs> not, it's heavy lifting, you understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I mean, that's yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my company is, uh, we're 13 years into this, and for the first five to seven years, we were very limited. We were building from master plans with napkin sketch details, and as my firm has grown, so is the liability, and so is the errors and omissions coverage, and all those things, and I'm finding that not only are the 30% the drawings necessary to communicate to clients just from a pure basic design intent, but they're also important so that the entire team can understand. They, they can't read my mind, they can't read your mind. And so the, the drawing aspect of it I find to be, uh, it's one of the more fulfilling pieces of the design process from, from my perspective, but it's also dangerous to go to the 100% level because you end up solidifying something that you might find that the client didn't even fully understand in the first place and then they walk through the framed house and they say, wait a minute, I don't want that wall there, or I don't, I don't, you cut off the view to the lake, or you, whatever. So there is a, there has to be some happy medium in between the two that, that we all strive, and I think it's up to individual companies and individual teams and the dynamic within the team to shape that process for individual clients, because some clients want the 100% drawings, because they think they're going to get more value or they're going to get more answers to their questions from the start, and maybe others are fine with it being loosey-goosey. Well, well, so far, I mean, we have been talking a lot about kind of the initial part of the process. Um, and we do, actually, let's go ahead and take this question before I move on, because I was about to. More of a comment, really, than a question, because I think to a degree you've taken the personal element out of this. Um, I just came through a major kitchen renovation at home, which for some of you is going to be a real small project, but for me it wasn't. It was a big project. And I talked with somebody first who advised me that coming through this project, there are going to be things that go wrong. There are going to be problems. If you're dealing with the right people, if you're dealing with people who are good people who know how to listen, who, know how, who have the experience to work their way through, you're going to come through the problems, they're going to get handled, and they're going to get done, and you know that you're in good hands. And I think that goes beyond budget, it goes beyond money, it's a, it's a part of the process that you can't remove. And if you can put yourself in the position of being that person that people call upon, then it's, it's going to work for you. It's, it's, it's got to help. It takes you out of the discussion. It takes you out of being the low bidder. It's, and, and, and it, it's, it's ultimately the best thing for the client. 
a very good observation, actually. Um, and Sam, you wanted to skip the... Responsibility of an architect, when, and when you have your client at 30% drawings, sometimes it's about like almost matchmaking, you know, it's about defining the experience being different with like, Ken Bana experience is very different from a Payne Boucher experience, which is different from Brooks and Hill, and being able to advise your clients a little bit about the sort of different experience you might get with different builders, I find more so than price, finding kind of the right match between a good client and a good builder is really kind of an important thing. Right, the chemistry. Yeah, some people are so type A that they need a, you know, absolutely lockstep builder, and some are a bit more, you know, chasing after a, a certain level of craft and looking for, like, a little bit of a hippy-dippy craftsman that can create an absolutely beautiful piece of, you know, work of art when it's finished. And so I think that's kind of an important thing that sometimes get lost in the bidding process. Right. No, that, that's a good observation, too. Um, and that actually kind of, I've been thinking, we've spent a lot of time now talking about kind of the initial part of the process. Uh, but particularly as Matthew and Jill here know, um, the budget isn't the final budget and the schedule isn't the final schedule until the last toss pillow has been put on the sofa and the last hydrangea has been planted out by the walk uh, and possibly died and been planted again. Um, so since we in this room know that the budget will change and the schedule will change from any initial projection, no matter how well-intentioned, or well-researched, kind of what are the issues that come up with you about working with clients and kind of helping them through this process of, oh my God, what's going on and what's causing this um, and how can I stop it? Or can I be happy with this? Why stop it when you're having fun? <laughs> <laughs> We're in the midst of something right now, as a matter of fact, which is very emblematic of this. Um, we try to be highly, highly communicative with all members of the team, and we're dealing with um, clients who are very intelligent and very good at making decisions. We started out with a very fixed number um, to do this project and what it was going to take to renovate and build out a, a large home. Um, and faced with a host of beautiful decisions, they have consistently, where, where I think we have a very good sense of their preferences and their budget, when we're keeping our eye on the ball, knowing what the overall number needs to be, um, and not going off the deep end in uh, showing them materials that are going to be super expensive. Um, somewhere along the line, the budget shifted. There was no communication with the contractor or with the architect, but it was very, very subtle shift with us. And no one else was aware of this, but we clearly, we noticed a, a distinction. And the budget suddenly opened up. And where it was very tightly controlled, it was relaxed in a fairly significant way. So that was a positive change for everybody on the job because the scope of work increased. And we've seen this in a number of places. And maybe it's because people 
um, feel like when we start to introduce all sorts of new concepts to them and, and describe some of the things that could be done, then they say, you know what, I didn't plan on doing this, but actually that sounds like a wonderful idea. I'm willing to spend the money. But I find in certain projects that not everybody is consistently communicated with, and it's up to us to be the point person who can gauge that shift and effectively communicate it to the rest of the team so that they understand. Right. So what stage are you in, in the project? Right now, where is, is it in construction? It's still in construction, but we are very far along. We've done all the design work for kitchen and bathrooms and all of the finishes have already been selected and they'll be, um, they're in the process of being built right now. So we're very far along. So it's, I would say, you know, in terms of the decision making window, we're probably 75% of the way done. So. Do you think that the budget was always there, potentially, and as the trust grew with the team, that they opened it up uh, a little, it, the transparency of the sort of underlying budget then grew a bit more, where the money had, had always been there, but now all of a sudden there was a trust that was established that they were willing to kind of open up their pocketbooks a little bit more? Well, I can tell you that for us, establishing trust, credibility, Honesty, integrity, and openness is really critical to establish within week one. Um, and so we ask a lot of questions because we don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to be presumptuous and presenting things that would be completely out of their scope. So we really try to get a handle on what we're dealing with up from the get-go so that we can manage their expectations. And likewise, we have a lot of people who have never done projects before, and we find ourselves, um, you know, educators, professors, you know, hand holders, just as much as we are a designer or doing marital mediation, um, walking them through every single step of the project. So likewise, that always means having decisions and you make trade-offs and and we call it capital budgeting so you you can understand you can choose this and get a great bang for the buck and there are other places where you can um, reduce costs so we try to actually help them make those decisions I think we have another question yeah I would like to just step back a minute to sort of initial calls um, when a potential client initially calls you, um, if they're unable to articulate a budget in that initial call, will you take that meeting with them at site? And my second question is, if you have a minimum for which you usually work, and I think we all have a sort of base number that below that it doesn't make economic sense for us, when do you have that discussion in that initial call? When do you tell them, I'm sorry, if that is your budget number, we're really not the people to work for, work with? Oh, 
<laughs> then I write him a nice email. <laughs> You know, we have, we have a service division, so we replace screen doors for people. So we're, our, our least expensive project and our most expensive project have such a wide spread that we, we, don't, have a, we don't have a bottom threshold. But we, we often enough, we, if, we take all the meetings. We take the meetings, so the salespeople, which usually includes me, not always, will go and meet with the person and, you know, often enough we'll say, I can see that you, you know, this is a really, this is a really interesting house and this seems like a cool project. It's, we're probably not a good fit um, and you probably are looking for someone with less overhead and you, you probably don't need a, sophisticated project management, the scale of this thing is such that you, you, could, um, you could get your brother-in-law and his three-legged dog and skill saw to manage this thing. So um, I sugarcoat it slightly, but yeah. Um, well, that kind of, since we know that both the budget and the schedule are always morphing as the project goes from beginning to end, uh, do you all have particular recommendations or do you have particular ways that you structure that conversation and loop in everybody else in the project? Is it any particular person's responsibility to kind of keep track of all of that and communicate it? Or do you all kind of do that for your own specialty and then the client has to kind of try to piece these things together to get an overview? It, we, we find that clients often want us to pull all the costs together. I mean, certainly on the architectural, the engineering piece, but they want us to, um, you know, estimate or, or bring a landscape architect to the table. And they like us to kind of track all the, the costs, not just the kind of architectural component. Um, so in order to do that, we have to bring our teammates uh, to the table, really. Because we, we can't, you know, we, we really try not to go into interior design turf um, any more than we need to. If it's, if it's not attached, we don't typically do it. Um, and certainly landscape is not it's outside of our expertise. So uh, then, of course, uh, smart house technology has gotten to be uh, a pretty large component now, and we try not to wade into that. So I guess uh, to answer your question, we really do bring, that's when we assemble a team to try and kind of rope in all those different costs. But, but clients do, they tend to really rely on us um, to create a comprehensive budget at some point. And they, they really, and if we're not right, uh, they really call us to task for that, so. They want integration, that, so they need to have all the players up front to integrate. Yeah. So we typically, even if we're the, even if we're first on board, we suggest to the client that the architect be the bull goose of the operation and that they have their hand on the tiller. So, and the clients, clients, we're very willing, obviously, to share our budget and schedule with the architect and with the interiors people and with the landscape architect. The client seldom shares design costs with us. 
So we're not really in a position to do the collation of cost data that you are. So, but, but we want to, there's the two things that, that, well, the three things that we want to do. One is that we want our, we want to have our, our hand fully in the stair design, and we want to, we want to bring the mechanical uh, subcontractor to the table, and we want to produce the Gantt chart that, that details when decisions have to be made in order for us to meet the client's schedule expectations. And so we're, in, we're involved in a job in the back bay right now where the, the building requires a 150-day cap on a project. So we've got to try to do two million bucks worth of work in 150 days. So we've negotiated with the building. We've worked in this building enough that they now use our rules for this. We say we want a one-week demo phase that counts for five days. This 150 days runs over weekends and holidays and everything. So it's not that many work days. And we said then we want a minimum 12-week hiatus for so that we can do everything that we have to do so that we can hit the ground running. And in this case, it got to be about 20 weeks just because of client indecision, because we wouldn't start back until we had the various boxes ticked. And so we only have 145 calendar days. And so those 145 calendar days, and plus or minus January 12th, who's counting? But anyway, that's, um, but we have to own that. We have to own the. I mean, that's just an extreme example of it, but we have to own the schedule to, to, to which means that every, all you guys, we're, 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 taking, we're saying this is when we need, we need the reflected ceiling plan, and, and if we get it a day late, that means the whole project's a day late. Um, there, there aren't a lot of landscape architects in the room tonight, but one of the stories that we encountered last year on a project was um, new house construction and the homeowner was financing the project, or at least a substantial portion of it, and they had a construction loan. And they went for a temporary CFO, and it turns out that they needed to have the landscape also substantially completed before they could roll their construction loan into a mortgage. And it was November, and it was a, almost a three-quarter of a million dollar landscape project that had barely gotten off the ground because of the timeline associated with the house construction. So going back to a client and saying, by the way, this is not only is this going to cost you time, but it's going to cost substantial money because you might not be able to close and get the mortgage rate that you wanted. and your certificate of occupancy is going to be held up. And so those are the reasons right off the back that I'm finding that having the, the team integrated from the start is it, those conversations have to happen, especially when it comes to zoning and permitting and closing out permits and, um, and, and tracking that in a budget capacity where we've been lucky on a lot of projects, not, not a ton, but enough that it, it matters that we've had owners reps involved and that in a lot of cases has been a pretty incredible asset to have uh, on the team because it's keeping everyone in check, including the homeowner, which... Uh, That's what they're for. Yeah, it, <laughs> it really exactly is. That's what they're for, and they're great. But it's, it's hard to, to say to someone, you, you need an owner's rep, because that's, that's like telling them they need a parent watching over what they're doing, but sometimes you they need a parent. You can just say, grow up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. is this something that you 
suggest tracking in, say, weekly team meetings? Sure. That just absolutely. kind of keep a running tab on these kinds of things? If, if you can, if the client has the, the budget to afford to have participants at those team meetings, or at least having milestone meetings, because I, as a landscape architect, I don't, I don't need to be there for a framing discussion or an HVAC discussion until none of you architects design bad sides of houses, so we end up having to find places <laughs> for air conditioning and generators. And so having those, those integration discussions from the very start from a site perspective is also incredibly important. You know, we need the landscape architect at all the early meetings, and then they can go away for a while, and then we, then we need them back. Then we come back and Jill, is there anything that, from your perspective, we haven't touched on tonight that you specifically want to talk about? I just think the most successful projects that we have ever been on are those that um, have very regularly scheduled meetings, which might include the project manager, us, the client may or may not need to be there. It depends on the circumstances um, and the architect and where we are regularly checking in and um, making progress and talking about the schedule, being on task, and everybody is getting the message at the same time very consistently. Um, that means that you have your marching instructions and you are accountable which is incredibly helpful. Um, I think these are, that is sort of the ideal case scenario, but I do think that in our experience, our projects are wildly different when it comes to the players and the circumstances. And all of this, I think, is doable if everybody is within arm's reach or you can communicate regularly. But, I mean, we've done a lot of projects which are further afield just are completing a project in um, Vermont. It's a three-hour drive, and I'm sure a lot of people do work on the Cape or in Vermont, New Hampshire, and those circumstances are very different because you cannot have a weekly one-on-one -on -one meeting with every member of the team um, to make sure that everybody's on task. So if that's the case, how do you manage it? You have conference calls. Um, you have insight in-person meetings with your client because they may be down the street or in the next town. Um, and we would go up to Vermont every three to four weeks to have on-site meetings with members of the team. But those are that is a far more complicated project and communication to manage. Well, we're kind of getting close to needing to wrap up, so I've kind of got a final question for the room at large, and we've got one here, um, which is, is there anything important that you were hoping we would talk about tonight that we haven't touched on yet? Um, and so we'll start right F. here. Perry wants, always wants to know about <laughs> insulation. I know it's going to be an insulation <laughs> question. Yeah, just um, quickly thinking about time and money, but specifically, how do you think about, so when, they add extra, when a client adds extra work, the conversations are easy if they want to shoot for the moon and go for the Calicutta feature wall. The conversation is a little trickier when they've added $200,000 worth of work and now we've added you know, two months or three months or four months to the schedule. In addition to adding to the schedule, it's going to cost the general conditions. Exactly. So if you could talk about that for a minute, please. Yeah. 
Well, that is a, that, yeah, that run cost discussion is an incredibly hard one to have. But um, it's way better to have it when they're first entertaining it um, and to be, be talking about the, and so we do, we say, listen, if nothing else is happening, it's costing you whatever the number is, $13,000 a week for our, for this to happen. So if we're adding, if we're adding four weeks, we're adding 50 grand. So be, be cognizant that this, the most expensive decision you can make is to not make a decision and have us have wheels spin in absence of a clear decision. So, um, and you know, I can say that with a straight face now because I've said it so often. So, I mean, it sounds rude, but if you sort of smile a little bit when you say it or whatever you do, but you, um, it has to be said and so, and it usually falls now I got some outspoken project managers that'll say it too, but someone at the meeting has to say it, and it's and it's not going to be the client introducing it. It has to be the the builder side. Um, right, it's always embarrassing. Can you that in two week increments or at the site at the site meeting? We no, we have weekly site meetings. So well, so uh, yeah. To Jill's point, it's way better if you're having weekly meetings where you can actually confront these hard subjects. On every weekly agenda, we have budget and schedule. We don't always have anything meaningful to say about it, but we want, we, we certainly want to, we don't want to have a meeting go by where there's been some budget or some scope increase or some advancement of the budget where we haven't talked about it. Then it's too embarrassing. Colin, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, I wanted to tie this back to the earlier uh, part of our discussion, which was about uh, selecting the contractor. And is the contractor selected through a bid process or is it a negotiated uh, type of a deal? And I guess to me, uh, where I really I think I've landed it with my career is that however that decision is made, really that doesn't impact the architect so much. But what is most important is I think that once we have a contractor on board and as an architect, that we together advocate to not start construction until we really have a solid plan as to what we're going to do. And th this will take me back. So when I first, my first job um, out of architectural school, I worked uh, for, it's called the Rouse Company. They developed Quincy Market and a whole bunch of developments throughout the East Coast. But we would complete our construction documents. We would submit it to the developer. And I remember my first set was rejected uh, and sent back. It was marked up, not complete. We're not going to start this building until you complete these drawings correctly. It was quite humiliating. And, and it rarely, you know, in a residential realm, our, our clients don't have the expertise to, to, to reject a set of plans. You know, they don't know what a set of plans really should have. But I think collectively with the, you know, landscape, interiors, construction, architects, the people in this room, we know what it takes to successfully complete a set of, pro uh, to have a complete set of plans to work from. And I think we should just all really advocate for that because it really helps. Once you get into construction. Controls cost. Uh, and also if the clients have spent a lot of money on those plans, and if, and if I can be clear enough that it's gonna cost you a lot more to change them and that the builder is going to back me up and say I'm not going to build that until I have a plan uh, and then we're going to give you 
you change order, it's going to tell you how the schedule extends, how the price extends. It really, it really controls that process. Um, and ultimately, I think, um, as a collective industry, our reputation is only going to grow because we're able to deliver um, on what we've promised. I think that's a great point. And we do need to wrap up here, although I think the conversation is going to continue probably downstairs because we do have a few more minutes for drinking and talking, and I hope a lot of you will have more questions for one another. Um, you know, kind of just as a quick takeaway, I mean, what I have consistently been hearing throughout this conversation uh, and might be a good way to leave us here is building trust, building clarity, being open and accountable and communicative with all of your partners in the project, which includes all of your professional partners as well as the client. Um, and I think what's personally exciting to me about this discussion is all of you and us here in this room actually have the power and the leverage to enact what we've been talking about. Because the clients you work with, you can help them work in the way that you are all advocating that these things happen. Um, and that, I think, is unusually exciting for these kinds of things uh, because it's, it's something that's in our grasp in a way to, to really change this. Um, and so I would like to thank you all for being here tonight. I hope you will come back for some of the other talks that are coming up later in the uh, year. Uh, the next one is going to be in late-ish January uh, on a date still to be determined, uh, but it's going to be quite a very different topic, but I, I think equally fun, uh, which is basically going to be how can we get more good women in to bad companies. Um, as it were. And so with that little taster in mind, thank you all again. Thanks to our wonderful panelists. Thanks to these guys. <laughs>